Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Minister of State Niall Collins addresses the Dáil, saying he didn't break any laws over the sale of land in Limerick. But does this put an end to the story? I am in absolutely no doubt that my actions in relation to this matter were at all times legally correct. People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy joins me to discuss the recent far-right protests which took place outside his family home. The king of American controversial talk show Jerry Springer dies at the age of 79. The show has been on the air now for 19 years, and uh, which makes it, I guess, in terms of original runs, I guess one of the five longest-running shows in television history. And later we take a look at the soft drink craze Prime. Do join us, as always, online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. Mr. Niall Collins says he didn't break any laws in relation to the sale of land in Limerick in 2008. The Limerick deputy has been under pressure to address the issue after details of the sale of this land were first reported by the Ditch website. Our political correspondent Gavin Riley has this report on events from the Doyle today. Eight days after the first reporting about his role in council meetings where land was eventually sold to his wife, Niall Collins made a Doyle statement with a note of contrition. Given the focus and perception amongst some, that has arisen in 2023, some 15 years later, it would have been better had I not participated in the local area committee meeting in January of 2007. But he insisted that when it came to the law, everything was above board. I am in absolutely no doubt that my actions in relation to this matter were at all times legally correct. There were no follow-up questions permitted to his statement, something which caused consternation at leaders' questions earlier. The Taunster reminded that he once sacked Barry Cowan for a similar stance. Why is there one rule for Niall Collins and another for other members of your government and your party? Do you agree with the Taoiseach that questions and answer sessions turn the dole into a kangaroo court? But Micheál Martin said the demand for questions had been led by the news website The Ditch, which he called a political operation, challenging the motivation of its major benefactor. Paddy Cosgrove's post earlier this year, and he's a strong supporter and has deep connections between the web summit, Paddy Cosgrove, and this organisation. And what did he say? Maybe it's time to body bag. That's a tweet. A few minions in media, civil service... Charities, judiciary, private sector, we're not facilitating Time is up. He, in turn, was accused of playing politics. Without the ditch, Robert Troy would still be a minister. Without the ditch, Damien English would still be a minister. No wonder you're attempting to undermine the ditch. If you read all the tweets of Paddy Cosgrave or Shea Bowes in respect of 
myself or an of other political leaders on this side of the House, it's very clear their agenda is to take down the government. That's fine. That's their entitled to have that. But I understand what it is. But I'm not going to facilitate it. But that all happened without Collins' presence or a reply. His concession not enough to convince his critics. Gavin Riley reporting for us earlier this afternoon. Now, for more reaction, I'm joined by Irish Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne, People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy and Fine Gael TD Emer Higgins. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Louise, I want to start with you. We got a flavour, I suppose, of some of the interactions in the Doyle today. What was the atmosphere like, given the fact that this is a story that has really plagued Nile Collins and the government for almost a week now? Yeah, it was kind of a day of two halves, to be honest. Like you saw there, we have uh, Micheál Martin standing up from the Dolan leaders' questions, getting quite angry with the opposition and um, talking about the ditch who originally wrote this story and kind of chastising and criticising them. Um, tempers were quite flared. Um, and I think Holly Kearns, Social Democrats, and indeed Paul, were quite annoyed that the Taunisha wasn't actually answering questions that had been put to them. And that was quite, you know, it was quite angry in parts and quite highly strung. And then... Later on, when you'd now Collins coming in to make his own statement, he was quite calm, he was quite straightforward, um, quite straight to the point, and he had the piece of paper in front of him. And I think, as we've seen the last time Minister Collins made a statement, he read the statement in full, there was no deviation, it was very straight to the point and much calmer than it had been in leaders' questions, which was quite interesting. If anything, you would think it would be the other way around. And Niall Collins was adamant, sort of the, the essence of his piece was, I should have maybe excused myself, but no law has been broken here. Yeah, and I think this is what we have been hearing from Fianna Fáil all week and indeed from three coalition leaders. Um, Minister Collins said that he was in that meeting in January 2008. He said that the land was discussed. In hindsight, 15 years later, given the attention that's on it now, perhaps he should have stepped out. But he was really keen to emphasise that his participation in that meeting had no influence on the fact that the land was ultimately sold to his wife. He argued that... There was multiple bids over a six-month period. His wife's bid was the highest. She got that. He was insistent he broke no laws. And he said he's absolutely in no doubt about that. And I think the only thing that we really did hear from him was that he should have recused himself. I think the opposition and Richard Boy Barrett, the people before Profit, were saying that he didn't answer any questions. So it'd be interesting to know what questions they still want answered. Yeah, and Paul Murphy, that's the question I have for you. What questions, or do any questions, remain at this point? I mean, the only substantial question that half remains, I don't really think it remains much anymore, is did he know did, did he know his wife had expressed an interest in buying the land when he participated in the decision of the council to put it up for sale? And I think he implicitly admitted today that he did know that by saying that in hindsight he would have recused himself. Because he it wouldn't make any sense to recuse himself if he didn't know that his wife. And so then that, for me, is entirely clear. He's then in breach of the Code of Conduct for councillors. He's in breach of the Local Government Act because that act is very, very clear. If you're participating in a decision where a connected person to you, which includes your spouse, has material interest, either beneficiary or pecuniary, in the matter that's being discussed, here was putting the land up for sale, well, then you have to declare your conflict of interest and leave the meeting and not play any part. And he didn't, didn't do that. So uh, in reality, what he was doing, he wasn't representing people who elected him. He was using his position to help enrich his wife and his family. Okay, and he would say that absolutely wasn't what he was doing, that there had been a number of expressions of interest in this piece of land prior to this meeting in January 2007, that the ultimate decision about whether to sell this land was carried out when he was no longer a councillor and that was only carried out by a full council, that that local area authority did not have the authority 
to decide on the sale of that land. But they had the authority to put the land up for sale. Um, his wife expressed an interest in the land through a solicitor in December. One month later, this is when the meeting of the local area committee uh, took place. Um, it's true that the, that the council management says there's a multiple interests in the land. Through the FOIs, there is only one interest that comes up, which is his wife. Similarly, the reference to multiple bids. He actually referenced three different bids today, and he implied that well, they were from three, okay, three different people. Okay, Two of those bids were his wife. There was, another, there was a bid when he was still a councillor okay, in March of, for 110,000. Then there was another bid. We don't know who that was from. That, we don't know for certain yeah. that it wasn't from his wife. And then there's the final bid, which is from his wife, 148,000. Yes, which, this, which this went through, through an auctioneer, this process. What he was saying was that in January 2007, there wasn't a vote on this. There was no there was um, disagreement. There, I mean, there, was, there, was a, there wasn't. That, that's, there was a decision. There, and it's very, 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 very clear in the minutes. He participates in the minutes. The members were in favour of the proposal. Okay. And it's very, very clear. I mean, you could read the Code of Conduct. People should go online and look at it. It's very clear. In and this situation, where someone has a pecuniary interest, which she does. So clearly, you just disagree with his interpretation, I suppose, of what a pecuniary or beneficial interest is. There's no further questions at this point. It's not just that I disagree. It, it, they, he, him and the Tarnashta deliberately uh, misstate what the requirement in the law is. They say... They would oh, say otherwise. They, okay. they say they don't have an interest in the land. Of course he doesn't have an interest in the land. It's owned by the council. Okay. But they have an interest Eimer in Higgins. a matter being discussed, yeah. and that's what it says I'm, in the legislation. All right, Eimer Higgins. councillor in South Dublin County Council uh, for eight years. And I suppose I'm very aware, because it was always my experience, that decisions to sell land belong to the county council. All of those decisions happen at full county council meetings. And um, what happens before that is what's called local area committee, where the immediate local councillors are informed of the recommendation of management. At that meeting, you don't have the power to say no. You have the power to note it or to note objections to it. But no decision is taken until that full county council meeting. That full county council meeting, Niall Collins was not there did not participate, did not vote, was okay. not in the chamber, was not a county councillor. Uh, what some people will have an issue with is why, I suppose, Niall Collins and why the Tonish and the Taoiseach seem to have such difficulty with the idea of Niall Collins coming into the Dáil and taking questions on this from an opposition. Is it full accountability, Imer Higgins? If you write a statement, you decide what is right and wrong within that statement, and then you give no opportunity to opposition to ask questions of that. Is that accountability in the dial in 2023? Well, listen, firstly, if there's... Uh, and I know some people, as Paul has just said, have raised legal queries about this, right? They're, they're legal queries. They're not for the doll. They're for the courts to determine. In terms of the doll, what, what it is there for is a mechanism for the opposition to hold TDs and ministers to account. But how did I they hold him? How did they get an opportunity to hold him to account? Because... The Taoiseach yesterday said the holding of accounts, the questioning of government members on something like this was akin to a kangaroo court. Well, he came in, he made his statement. In my mind, that clarifies things, and it absolutely does. And you asked Paul Murphy what, what um, questions remain, if any, and, and there aren't necessarily questions remaining because he has clarified things. And that is the transparency. That, that's the world in which we operate. And I'm Should glad you have taken he questions? Would that. you have preferred that? That's, that's up to him. I mean, we have had a situation where in the past some ministers have taken questions because they felt it was in their interest to take 
all the questions, clarify everything. Minister Collins obviously felt his statement clarified things. And, and having heard his statement, I do agree it has clarified the situation. Would Fine Gael have preferred if he had taken questions and actually possibly drawn a line under this? I believe a line has been drawn through his statement. I think his statement has been really clear on this. Why is it always your party, though? Because we've seen recently, you know, Pascal Donoghue had to go in and take questions. Leo Varadkar had to go in and take questions. But Niall Collins didn't. So is, there not, is that not an inequity there? No, nobody had to. The minister chose you, to. It chose to, exactly. Okay. So well, our, our ministers have chosen Has there to. been, Louise, different support given to Nell Collins than perhaps was given to Damien English or to Robert Troy? I think in the Damien English instance, he resigned straight away. And, you know, he, he after that, when you're not a minister, you're not accountable to the doll. I know there were questions for him, or calls for him to go in and answer questions. At that stage, he wasn't a minister, so hands were tied. He stood down straight away. I suppose at Robert Troy, there was kind of more of a drip feed of information. And I think that was really the big issue is that with the Robert Troy thing, it was kind of more information day after day after day. And that didn't necessarily help his case. Um, and eventually he did go. It's it's interesting to see the difference in between them. Um, and it's diff it, the timing of it's interesting too, because this has actually happened during dull term, whereas the other two, we were on holidays both times. So I don't know if that makes a difference, but it's been an interesting kind of way of looking at it. Um, Imer, the comments from the Tarnished today about the Ditch website, what did you make of those comments? I suppose I, I was taken aback by them. Um, what the Tarnished implied uh, really was that some of the articles on the Ditch were misleading um, and in some cases had information that was false. Um, as we know, he questioned kind of the sensational the sensationalism of it in terms of that online campaign. Um, and he's obviously of the view that there have to be questions answered in relation to the funding of the site. Um, I believe a statement has happened today, uh, which, yeah. But you would accept, though, that this website has been a correct in the stories it has written about <coughs> certain ministers and that those statements, those stories, have led to the resignation of government ministers. They have indeed, and, and they've put important information in the public domain. And at the end of the day, that, that, that has to be welcomed because our political democracy is built on transparency and it's built on trust. Um, but at the same time, we obviously need to look beyond just headlines and scratch the surface and see the facts behind stories. And I think in this instance, it's been a good example of scratching behind the headline, yeah, but seeing the facts of the matter and laying them out for the doll and, and for yeah. the public to Paul, see. I mean, now Collins didn't dispute any element of the story that was published by the ditch. That, that, that is the truth. He's tried to distract from it, but the core elements of the story, they all completely stand up. So what we saw today was, I think, a really cynical and a really dangerous attack on a media institution by the Tarnishta to try and distract from the key issue in terms of Niall Collins and to try to undermine the ditch. Why? Because they've published stories that he doesn't like. Um, and because they've published stories that expose corruption, unethical behaviour, and they have resulted in multiple resignations. They've done good journalism, and then he's out to undermine it. And I think that is well, that's very dangerous. He used the privilege of the doll to do it. He used the privilege of the doll to describe yeah. PVP TDs okay. as puppets of Putin. He wouldn't repeat it outside because he knows it's a complete lie. So it's a very, very dirty kind of politics he likes to engage in, I think. Louise, what have the Dutch said about this? They have issued a statement to you? Yeah, they have. So they issued the statement to us earlier, and they said that rather than address the facts about Niall Collins, Michal Martin launched an hysterical, paranoid attack on the ditch under dull privilege. And um, he had suggested they pay for advertising. They said they've never done so. They said they've never criticised other media not picking it up. And um, they also said that he had mentioned their funding. They said they're funded by subscribers and uh, and Web Summit, but they kind oh, of right. said that there's nothing untoward happening there. Uh, very quickly, is this the end of the matter? Do you think for Nell Collins? 
I think I think it seems to be. I think you know he went into though he made the statement. I think barring any other information or any other stories, I think he is out the gap on this. All right, look, I'm going to have to leave it there for now. My panel though, are going to be staying with me because after the break, uh, why far right protesters are targeting Paul Murphy's home as he prepared to give him his baby a bath this week. You're very welcome back. Well, a group of protesters turned up outside the home of People Before Profit TD Paul Murphy and his partner earlier this week, just as they were preparing to give their newborn baby a bath. The Dublin TD posted a picture of 11 people outside his home in Tallaght. Well, for more on this, now Paul Murphy has stayed with me, as well as political correspondent with the Mayor Louise Byrne, Fine Gael, TD Emer Higgins, and scientist and disinformation expert Dr David Robert Grimes. You're very welcome to the programme. We're going to start with you, Paul. This was just a couple of days ago, uh, Monday night. Tell me exactly what happened. Yeah, I mean, we were just literally getting ready to give Juniper a bath, and my partner Jess just glanced out the window and saw that there's a crowd of, of people out there with placards, a big tricolour, and then we realised, oh, wow, like, this is a protest, which we weren't, obviously, we weren't expecting. It's quite a shocking thing to happen. Um, not to see a protest. Obviously, I see a lot of protests in my life, but to see a protest outside your home, in your neighbourhood, when you're, you know, on your downtime. Um, and I think it's something I've thought about afterwards. It's a point we often make about the housing crisis, is, like, how important it is for people to have you know, a safe space, that that's their space where you can go and relax and you know everything is kind of normal. And so it was, yeah, a bit a bit shocking and I suppose upsetting. Um, and difficult too, because it's not just you in the house, as you say, yeah. your partner is there and Juniper is there too. And that your duty is to protect them and to keep them yeah, safe I mean, too. I mean, and to be clear, like, you know, they didn't attack the house or anything like that. Um, but obviously their presence outside, it's means you can't relax. You're not likely to just go about your day. And I also would say for, for my neighbours who, whatever about us, I don't think we deserve this, but my neighbours definitely don't deserve this. They didn't do anything to draw this into. Do you know what I mean? We're in, we're in a cul-de-sac. It's, it's not on a main street. It's not in a busy area. So to have a crowd of people hanging around at, at a corner outside uh, someone's house obviously isn't, isn't pleasant for them either. It's quite disturbing for them in, in, in their location. How long did they stay for? Were they saying anything? Did they have they seem to have had placards there. Yeah, they stayed about an hour and a half. Um, I mean, some of them were online, were live on TikTok and stuff. Um, the, the main, the placards and the main thing that they were saying was given out about refugees, you know, saying fake refugees, that kind of uh, stuff. Um, but then actually they were giving out a leaflet to people who passed by, which was opposing our bill to insert the right to housing in the constitution. So there's a kind of conspiracy theory out there to say that if we do this, then the government will seize people's homes, when in reality it's about saying that we could have more effective rent controls, we could have an extended eviction ban, things like that. And is that why you were targeted, do you feel? I don't know, really. I think that um, people before profit have been to the fore, um, working with lots of other groups, but been to the fore in terms of challenging some of the ideas of the far right. We helped to drive the big mobilisation on uh, February 18th, the day Juniper was, was born, the Ireland for All uh, protest was tens of thousands of people on the street saying, let's, let's unite, let's not be divided, fight together for housing, for public services, for jobs. So we've been up front and I've been up front, you know, on Twitter and so on in terms of calling these people uh, out repeatedly and in the doll. And I think certainly that's part of the reason why they've, they've targeted us. And it is a bit of a feature. Obviously, they do target government politicians to some extent, but also opposition TDs. I mean, the most serious thing that's happened to a politician in this country is Martin Kenny, 
the then the Sinn Féin justice spokesperson. Who we've had on the programme, who um, spoke at length about the intimidation his family faced and the yeah. fact that they actually had to move, move out of their house. They, they had their a car, family home. car burnt down. And at the moment, definitely, people for profit and solidarity are you know, in the sights of these people. Mick Barry is being harassed on a very regular basis now. And what does that in, feel in like? Um, it's, it's obviously unpleasant. Um, it, it doesn't, to be clear, deter me at all. I've been through worse things in terms of political campaigning. I spent time in an Israeli uh, jail for trying to break, break the blockade of Gaza. I obviously went through a very long trial in terms of the protest in, in Jobstown. So, you know, as a socialist activist, you, you, your face, you can face difficulties. So it's, it's a pain to have to deal with this. Like this week, I've been trying to focus on the whole Niall Collins story and trying to pursue that. We had a bill on Wednesday to reduce rents. And I think there is a point there. These people like to portray themselves as anti-establishment. But in reality... Certainly this week, but I think on lots of occasions, they're actually attacking the ones who do, I, I would argue, the best job in terms of criticising the government and holding them to account. And what, what did you do? Did you approach them? Did you call the guards? Is there any way that you can ensure they don't return to your house? No, I, I, I called the guards. Um, I mean, the guards had... This was a possibility previously whenever we were organising protests you know, against the far right and organising in the community, organising Tala for All. So the guards had said previously to me, if, if something like this happened, to call them, to so call the guards. The guards came to observe uh, the situation. I didn't go out because I think that would just be the kind of confrontation that they would like to have. Um, I mean, there, there's nothing... The, the guards can't, uh, they can't stop them protesting. And I, and I don't think people should be like, legally banned from protesting. I think there should be public pressure on people not to protest in local areas, but I think it would be a slippery slope to go down to say you can't protest here, you can't protest there. So you wouldn't agree with this idea, um, I think there was a proposal at one point, that they would introduce legislation to prevent people from protesting outside a politician's family home? No, I, I wouldn't. I mean, obviously, I don't want... I've never protested outside a politician's family home. I never would. I would encourage people not to, regardless of what side of the political spectrum they are. You think but that's I, crossing a line in terms of protests? Uh, I, I do, uh, I do. I don't think people's families should be targeted in that way. Um, you know, I, I signed up for my views. Uh, Juniper certainly didn't <laughs> sign up for any of my ten views. Weeks. We'll see what Juniper thinks about my views and what like world outlook they're going to have when they when they grow up. Um, so yeah, I, I think it does cross the line, but I'd be very hesitant to have any sort of legal bar on it because I think the civil liberties, basic right to freedom of assembly, is very very uh, important. So I just encourage those people to stop not to be targeting people's homes and to bring their protests to the to the doll or other appropriate places. Yeah, Dr. Grimes, I want to go to you. Do you think there is evidence of sort of a far-right movement growing in Ireland, gaining pace, doing more of this? So, absolutely there is. Um, Paul is far more principled than me. I think I'd be very upset if people were trying to intimidate. And I think we have to look at that as what this is. But one thing that's very interesting is that their protest is quite nebulous. If you look at it, they're ostensibly protesting about immigration, but they're handing out leaflets about gender identity. Um, a few months ago, there was, they were protesting about vaccine stuff. So what you tend to see in these movements is a sense of uh, people being unhappy and adopting a wedge issue. So actors on the alt-right can absolutely use that, and the hard-right can use a wedge issue to get... There's unhappiness over the housing crisis, there's a cost-of-living crisis. It's very easy in a conspiracy theory to say us versus them is the narrative, and that is the archetype of all conspiracy theories. Um, they're exploiting you. They're bringing in immigrants to take your jobs. We see this in nativist movements, we see this in populist movements around the world. It's playing on, on fears, isn't it? There's, there's a sinister element to this. It's very cynical, and it works really, really well. 
well. We've seen a lot of uh, anti-refugee protests, which are entirely misplaced, but the rhetoric that stirs them, uh, stirs people up and kind of makes them fall down this rabbit hole is because these actors find a wedge issue like immigration and say, that's why everything is going bad for you. And that's very sinister. That is, uh, and it is, but it's also, it's uh, in, integral to all conspiracy theories. Us versus them simplify down to a very stupid narrative and set people against each other. So but we does have it to bring, be aware of Does that. it bring in people who would say, look, I have quite legitimate fears around perhaps the number of refugees coming into the country, or I have legitimate fears about the housing crisis, or I have legitimate fears about COVID or health or whatever. You know, does it bring those people in? Into the fold? It absolutely does. In fact, we saw that during the pandemic. We saw there was um, obviously lockdowns were hard on everyone. They weren't designed to be a permanent measure. But we saw a little bit of prototyping of this. We saw... Um, people's discontent and unhappiness being weaponized, being put into an us versus them narrative. I think uh, Leo Varadkar, people outside his house in 2021, I think it was, protesting about vaccines and masks and things like that. So if you can tap in to someone's unhappiness, and this is, th these are wedge uses in politics. We saw it in 2016 in America, it was about race. Immigration is what, uh, is, that alt-rights or hard-right groups use in Europe because that's always been a contentious issue. We also have an element of, it's a small element, but it does matter, of Russian disinformation that also targets those wedge issues. Because if you want to cause these fissures in society, that's what you do. You find the real valid unhappiness and then you blame someone that doesn't deserve it for that and you demonize a subsection of society and that's what we're seeing here, for sure. What role is social media playing in all of this? Is, is that to blame for the furtherance for the, for it's, the it's, it's not to blame for it per se, but it doesn't help. It's an accelerant. So if you went, to, years ago, if you went into a pub or whatever else and said something that was outlandish, someone would stop you and go, you're, you're being stupid. Now I can go online and find people that will amplify those views. We have Somewhere in the world, 100%. somebody will agree with you. So in 2016, the Columbia Journalism Review Actually, yeah, they, they flagged this. They said that the fact that we're becoming curators of our own media is making us more polarised. And there's a thing that conspiracy theorists and, say, these activists, they use thing called stigmatised information. They won't trust the Irish Times or the Examiner or whatever. What they'll trust is some highly racist website because that's what they've put their trust in. And we're not listening to the middle ground or other people's opinions. We're getting more and more siloed. Information siloing is dangerous because... No discomfortary information can ever get to us. We can't get ourselves out of the rabbit hole. That's what social media is really toxic for. Uh, have you been targeted at all, Emer? I think a lot of politicians have been. Um, I, I suppose Paul has had a very, a very serious experience in the last few days, and and it's quite similar to what happened Minister Simon Harris and his wife and their the time three week old baby. And I totally disagree with that. You know, I, I don't think anybody should have to put up with that, whether they're an elected politician, whether no matter who they are. And I know this has also happened to people who aren't elected politicians. I know it happened previously uh, to our, our chief medical officer. I don't think that's right. Um, I, I do How actually... Do you put a stop to it? Well, I, I do actually disagree with Paul on that. I think we do need to legislate for it. Um, I think... To make it an offence to protest outside a politician's family home or anybody's family anybody's home? Anybody's family home would be my view. And I suppose the reason for that is because I believe you need to balance the right to protest with, with the right for privacy. I, f I fully, absolutely fully believe in the right to protest. But I don't believe in the right to intimidate people. I don't think anybody has that right. And I think that's what you choose to do if you choose to, instead of protesting outside someone's workplace or office or doll, decide to take it to outside their home where their family may be 
young kids, elderly parents, like this unfortunately has happened previously, about a decade ago. I know in your own area, a former colleague of mine, Brian Hayes, had posters put up in his um, in his home that happened in Lucan for Derek Keating. I don't think that's right. I think people's homes should be off limits. Uh, Louise, in terms of that uh, legislation or that um, legislation that was suggested around, you know, stopping protests outside family home, where are we at with that? Yeah, so this has been suggested by Senator Malcolm Noonan, he's a Fianna Fáil senator, and this is an idea he had put forward, but I think there are concerns, and I think it comes back to what Paul says, I think people don't, and politicians don't want to be seen to tell people that they can protest, because it is a right to protest, people have that right. Um, I think there as, is... As Emer said, it has to be balanced against your right to privacy, perhaps, and that yeah. should be respected within the family home. No, absolutely, and I, but I think that is what people are finding difficult, and the politicians are finding difficult, is how do you strike that balance, and I think... I don't know if it's going anywhere for now, unfortunately, um, in that sense. I think what the government are putting a lot of hope on is the online safety regulation bill, that social media might begin to tackle those kind of far-right comments online. Yeah. But it'd be interesting to see what happens. My worry is if we don't tackle that, that we end up with a situation where we're putting people off becoming politicians. And I think we've just talked about um, the rise of the extreme right. And I suppose with extremism, now more than ever, we need people to put themselves forward for politics. And it, it, we can't let this become a barrier for anybody interested uh, in doing that. Dr. Grimes, what do you think needs to be done to try and counter this? Well, this as you say, quite sinister, quite dangerous. I, I think, with, with the disclaimer, I have no uh, political insight whatsoever. I'm not going to talk about legislation, but what I will talk about is fixing the problem long term. So you mentioned social media. I'm not sure if the bill, an Irish bill, is going to do much on that because this is a systemic problem. Facebook it's a global is a, problem. Well, Facebook's a bigger, say, it's bigger. It's a bigger company than the economies of some countries, right? So you need a supranational way of doing it. I would say you, the only real shot we have is European legislation to make things a publisher. That might be one thing to do, and I've, I've written about that before as an option, because again, social media is interested in engagement. People who tend to fall down these rabbit holes engage more than regular users. They are, they are the profit makers for these things. No company is going to legislate against or voluntarily take any action against that. But the longer term problem um, to, to solve that we need to kind of train people to better recognize the tropes of misinformation, the tropes. If something makes you angry or outraged or disgusted, particularly if you read it online, there's a very good chance it was engineered to do that. We do know from all the studies we have on this, we can immunize people against misinformation if they know what to expect. It's much harder to pull them out of a rabbit hole when they've gone down. It's much easier to prevent them getting there in the first place. So maybe education is a long-term fix to that. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, but thank you to my panellists for joining me this evening. Uh, Louise is going to be staying with me. And after the break, we're going to be discussing the 15 euro soft drink that children are asking their parents to buy or buying themselves and the death of TV legend Jerry Springer. Stay with us. 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're very welcome back now for a look at all of the other big news stories of the week. Louise Byrne has stayed with me and I'm also joined by community development worker Kieran Malouli and journalist Jen Hogan. You're both very welcome to the programme. But firstly, we want to talk about the soft drink teens are going wild for, which is being marketed by the YouTubers Logan Paul and KSI. Earlier, I spoke to co-owner of Munch Diddley's Sweet Shop in St. Stephen's Green, King Cook, and I began by asking him about the trends he's seeing with this soft drink, Prime. So it ranges from, from kids to young adults, even older adults are buying it to see what it's about. Um, it's usually parents coming in and buying it for their kids as well who are being hounded by them for, for the drink. And how much are people spending on it? I mean, if they come in here and they find that you have the full range, the powders, the cans, the bottles, how much are they willing to spend? Well, it depends. Um, a lot of people just want the bottles at the moment because you can reclose them as well. They're all like a trophy. They're, it's not about the taste. A lot of people say they don't like it and a lot of people say that they, that they do like it. But really, people are hanging it above their bed. Hanging it above their bed? Hanging it above their bed, putting it on a shelf just to show it off. If you, have, if you have that, you have a status in Dublin as a young kid. You can show it off to all your friends. But you can reuse the bottle, is that the yeah, idea? Yeah, some people put LED lighting into them to make them glow up in the dark. And is this a trend that you think is going to last? Uh, for the foreseeable future, yeah, until it's widely available, yeah. I mean, people are going into shops and buying flavours and then they're coming into our shop and buying the rest to add to their, to their collection. And you talk about a collection, like, it's not for a young kid the cheapest collection, is no. it? It's 15 quid. It's 15 euro, yeah. How is it so expensive? It is essentially a, a fruit drink. Well, we get it from America, and it's very expensive to get it transported here, which drives up the cost as well. So that's it. That's Munch Diddley's and St. Stephen's Green, uh, who I spoke to yesterday, who have Prime, who gave me a bottle. And my guests all have a little sample <laughs> of this drink. Has anybody tried it before? Nope. No, and I'm a bit oh, nervous. I've, I've been living with this, uh, Kira, for, for the last uh, year and a half, two years, and living with these other guys. I mean, that's the real story here, Logan Paul uh, and... Uh, KSI. KSI, because they have been living in our home for the last 10 years, because, of course, at the end of the day, they were YouTubers first. That was their first gig, YouTubers. Then they moved into wrestling, boxing... And da-da, last year we got this. Now they're in the, now they're in the business with a, with a, in a partnership with a, a Nashville businessman uh, called Max Clemens, who owns the product. But they're promoting this now instead of their boxing and, and alongside the wrestling and boxing. And we say they're promoting it. They have 40 million followers between the two of them. And they're hugely influential, aren't they? Absolutely incredible. I mean, they started last year, I think in the first 12 months, $250 million of sales. In January alone, $45 million. Of this? But, uh, but the big thing about it, I think the real story, in terms of, I think it's why it's on this week, is that it's the price issue. I was in the States last year, in Ohio, in the month of July, bought a can of this stuff in a Walmart store for $2. Mm. Two US dollars. Came back to this country. This, there was also a little bit about it here. Went into the Stevens Green Shopping Centre in January. It's 15 euros on one, in a yeah, shop. Yeah, and I've heard of it being 9, 10 elsewhere. I heard of it being 25 euro in another shop down the country. I know Duns were selling it, but it was the UK version, not the US version that sold out. Look, I'm going to, I know, Louise, you just can't wait to taste it. <laughs> I'm very nervous. The right. If the colour right. of it is putting me off a little give it a little, bit. Give it a little sup there. 
It's sweet. Very sweet. Oh, it's, it's just a super sweet, sweet drink. Yeah. It's, I would say it's more like apple juice than lemon and lime. No? It's, Maybe. Like, it's like cordial. It's kind of like a cordial. That's Look, what it's like. It's like a really sweet cordial. Isn't like it? a really heavy, concentrated cordial. Yeah, that you haven't it. diluted yet. That you don't have to pay 15 quid for. All right. Look, I don't. but people <laughs> aren't, I don't think, spending 15 euro because of the taste of it, per no. se. Are they? It's no. because, as Keen said in, in the uh, VT there, it's a trophy for young people. Does that make you a little bit uncomfortable, Jen, as a parent? Yeah, and, you know, I uh, even when we were talking about this earlier, I went out and I asked parents about this, and I thought, God, are people really falling for this? 15-euro a bottle, and really, could you be sucked in? You just say no to your kids. And hundreds, literally hundreds of parents came back to me and said, no, they're feeling the pressure that, you know, they don't want their kids to be the only one out. It's actually, it is a trophy, and it's even a kind of, it even symbolises your coolness. There were some parents reporting that their kids were excluded from play because their children didn't have the prime drink. It, it, it's gone it's to levels symbol. of crazy. Yeah, it was. it's a status symbol. And there is, a, like the kids have really bought into this and parents feeling the pressure. It's been got for confirmations, for birthday parties, um, for people, their children spending pocket money on it, parents giving in and letting them get it. And they've even said some of their kids don't even like the taste of it, but you have to have it. So, you know, the bottle is the thing to have. But there's... There has always been fads, hasn't there? Like, it was Tamagotchi when I was, mm. you know, whatever, 12, 13, 14 years old. I was of just age. about to say, like, peer pressure, like, used to be peer pressure to smoke or to drink alcohol, yeah. not, <laughs> like, a, a dilute drink. Yeah, it always goes through fads. It was Nintendo DS when I was younger, which was even more expensive again. But, I mean, for a bottle, like... You, like, you're not even meant to reuse plastic bottles like because of the chemicals in them. Isn't that right? That they go funny on the inside. And I mean, to hear of kids being excluded because they haven't got a bottle, it's a bit wild really, isn't it? I, I see in Australia they've actually uh, banned this in some schools. Yeah, Would there, you agree there, with that? Yeah, there, yeah, there is issues. Is it an energy drink? Do we need an energy drink for five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds? That's, mm -hmm. that's the big issue. And I mean, and the other the other worrying part about, my, I think, uh, when you look at it, Kira, is that this is not the end of it. They're working on a vodka product, apparently. So they're looking at a market down there. It's a marketing operation. It's a triumph for marketing over common sense in a lot mm. of places. They've, they've sucked in an audience on YouTube over 10 years and boy, they're now creaming it in. And they have denied that they're trying to keep supplies limited, but it is very, very, very difficult to get your hands on absolutely. in some parts of the world. Is that part of a marketing point? There are questions about yeah. that, Jen. I mean, there is, they're absolutely, it's a bit like we've seen it before. Even at Christmas, you see certain toys and things when there's a limited supply of them. Obviously, it's more in demand. I think the interesting thing about this is the argument is there's no sugar in the hydrate one and the ingredients don't look so bad, even though it's not recommended towards children. And maybe that makes parents a little bit more lenient about it. It's not high in sugar. I don't think there's caffeine in it either. It, no, they say there's one. no caffeine. There's no but caffeine. There's but it's, it's that whole thing of, you know, for a long time we're telling parents don't don't give their, your children sports or energy drinks. And it's just that slippy slope as well as the huge cost, that slippy slope towards kind of going down that road and trying when we're trying to keep them away from it. It is, it is concerning. Yeah, okay, definitely. I want to move on to uh, another story, which was the death of the TV icon, uh, Jerry Springer. Uh, it was announced earlier today at the age of 79. Let's take a quick look. Yeah, at one of his programs. You are controlling? He can't even have his friends. He can't even be around his family? No, you are not marrying my son. My show has been on the air now for 19 years, and uh, which makes it, I guess, in terms of original runs, I guess one of the five longest-running shows in television history. I'm not proud. <laughs> Um, because what we're starting now is we're starting to get the kids of our original guests on. 
And this is wrong because these people were told not to procreate. And they just went out and had kids. So in a sense, we have our own farm system. We're raising the next generation of guests. And very few shows do that. Jerry Springer, did you watch it, Louise? Was it on when you were a younger person? It was definitely on. And I think it kind of led to a lot of the shows that we all did watch, you know, those kind of core daytime shows. It was kind of the first of those confrontational shows. Um, it spawned a whole genre of Absolutely. Of like, if you look at the likes of the Jeremy Kyle show, it was those kind of ideas and that was all where it came from. Now, I think, obviously, there was questions about were you exploiting people's real issues and I think those conversations have been had over the years, but a lot of people did find them entertaining and a lot of people watched them and I'm sure a lot of people were really upset by this news today. Yeah, because even though I think a lot of people would look back and say, mm, perhaps it was exploitative at the time, I think Jerry Springer said it himself, it was called Trash TV. There was an incredible appetite for it, Kieran Maloney. I, I mean, at one point, he was actually outrating Oprah Winfrey in the US. Incredible, because it was a new, a new genre. He came, I think he appeared on, the, on this side of the, the water on Channel 4 initially. That's when they put it out. And we'd never seen anything like this before. This type of open, violent confrontation backstage and, and front of stage. But I'm not sure, was it? In retrospect, was it a good addition to television? Was it something we're going to remember for the rest of our life in terms of quality? Late, late night, I, I, I'm not a fan, I have to say. I think it was something that got out of control. We have, we have, we have cases where it really got out of control in terms of people who were injured and harmed in, yeah. in a lot of... Love. Yeah, that sort of outrageous, very brash television. It was. but you perhaps know, something we will live to regret. It will. I, th I think you're right there. And I think we will look back, like Louise said, there where we'll look at the people who were exploited on, on these programmes. But at the same time, when we heard he died, we all knew who he was, you know. And there was still... Oh, I remember Jerry. Going, oh, oh, Jerry. Oh, oh Jerry. We all knew all that. And we all have memories of watching it and, and watching and, like, horrified at what you were seeing. But at the same time, still still completely hooked on it and, and focused on what they were, on what was going on even if you were doing so in a disapproving way. I, I don't know. I think it's, it's look, it's, it's the end of an era, maybe, when you see somebody like Jerry die, because we all have those memories of watching it. But it was definitely exploitive TV. It's kind of interesting how quickly we moved on from that, though. Like, it's not that long ago since these kind of shows ended. And yeah. already we're looking back at them and going, God, they were really exploitative, weren't they? You can't believe that was led on television. But in hindsight, it actually wasn't that long ago. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, even when you look at Friends and things, and we're looking back at different shows and talking about, would they be OK today? And Jeremy Springer being one of those. Uh, possibly not. No, um, definitely I want to not. move on <laughs> to the coronation of King Charles III and the tweet from Michelle O'Neill, um, the Sinn Féin First Minister in Northern Ireland, uh, saying that she is going to accept the invitation and she is going to attend. Has she been generally praised for this, Louise? Generally, she has. Now, there has been some criticism of it, saying, you know, she is supposedly a Republican leader and should she be going to uh, the King's coronation, which is the exact opposite of Republicanism. But I think she has made the point that when she was elected, well, she hasn't been elected yet, but she is saying she's going to be the First Minister for all and she has to represent both the Nationalist and the Unionist sides in Northern Ireland. So she is going to go. And it's a big step for Sinn Féin and it's a big part of their history. The DUP have praised it, which is interesting in and of itself, that something that they have welcomed. And um, there has been some criticism of it, but I think, you know, it's a big step forward. And she attended Queen Elizabeth's funeral. So we have kind of really seen this 
step change from Sinn Féin on these issues in recent years. Do you think grassroots Republicans will accept this, Kira? I think they probably will. I think the new brand will anyway. I mean, this is, it's a smart move by Michelle O'Neill. I mean, ever since the moment that Martin O'Neill shook hands with the Queen, this issue was, was sorted, mm -hmm. really, and in the minds of the old crew and the new crew. So I don't think there should be that many surprises. And I think particularly the visit of the Queen here and that moment at the Garden of Remembrance when she bowed her head mm -hmm. and she remembered all of those who died in conflict here. I think that the legacy here, so I should say the dividend from that visit is what we're having now, that Michelle O'Neill can go go into the... And will be accepted, I think, by, by right across the UK as well. I don't think there'll be a major issue with her attending. Uh, because yeah, we, we, it's a different phase. Higgins and Leo Vradker yeah. are attending too. She said she's just attending as, a, as another leader. But I did hear Patrick Tobin on the radio today saying it's like taking an oath of allegiance to the king. He said we're brushing our past and those legacy issues under the carpet by attending uh, this coronation. Is no, that a fair point? No, no. I mean, we're... She has promised and pledged to be uh, a leader for all, you know, and to, and to represent all, she has to go to, you know, she does have to go. She's recognised that people on this island identify as British and that the coronation's important to them. She has to go to that. You know, there is, we know what happened in the past. We know there's a lot of uncomfortable things about the past. Doug Beatty as well today came out and complimented uh, her for going and he got a lot of, he, there was a lot of backlash towards him for, for crediting her for going. But no, I don't think so at all. I wouldn't agree with Padra on that. I think she, she had no choice. In, in, in saying that, it was interesting when you saw the likes of the Daily Mail today and their front page and they were heavily critical of her but I think it would have made no difference she'd have been criticised had she refused she to go she didn't, she's she didn't. criticised for going yeah but no, I think it's the right decision but it's great as First Minister it's a brilliant uh, because mm -hmm. you know the big issue they want the, the, uh, she, their argument the unionists will not allow her to be seen as First Minister they won't let her into office now she's doing it anyway she's going to the coronation she's saying she represents all the people of Northern Ireland Protestant and Catholic and there she is in the front row and she's mm -hmm. going to get some media coverage from it as well Okay, I just want to move on to our final uh, story. And this was the head of the Climate Change Advisory Council uh, mentioning that the, you're calling on the government to introduce a levy on workers who get free parking at their workplaces in urban areas. First of all, Louise, it'll surprise people, I think, and a lot of us didn't realise that this is actually already on the statute books. This is something that could be introduced at a... Yeah, and this is pen. what in Iraq this committee heard yesterday, that all it needs is someone to stand up and make the decision. Um, it was really interesting comments from uh, Marie Donnelly, the head of the Climate Change Advisory uh, Council, and she was saying that, you know, if you have free parking in Dublin City Centre, that's the guts of 20 euro a day you're saving, five grand a year. Should people be given those perks at, at a time when we really are putting so much focus on trying to move people to public transport and get people out of cars and, you know, anyone who commutes to Dublin City Centre every day we'll see the amount of cars on the road it's a huge number so she's saying that this is something that should be considered now I think what the way the government are looking at it is is that this is something they can't necessarily do until the public transport is better because an awful lot of people still do rely on cars so I think it's a suggestion that's being made but I can't see it happening anytime soon uh, Jen do you think it's possible for you for example busy family lots of kids lots of activities going to school etc to ditch the car more often no, I mean, I where, we walk where we can and my kids walk to school and stuff and that's fine. And I work mostly from home now, which makes life easier. But I drove when I was working in the office and nobody chooses to drive into town unless they absolutely have to. I, I did have parking, I did have a parking space, but between the cost of childcare and trying to work around the kids, I think I was working for about 40 euro a week at one stage. Now, if that was to be penalised, they'd have pushed me out of the workforce completely. But a lot of people work just to keep their, their career going for the future. The idea that you can just get public 
public transport and just get from your house to work and that's it and doesn't take into account that you might need to drop children to a creche, pick them up at a school, that there might be an indirect route that you have to take that public transport isn't going to serve. It's a bit short-sighted and I yeah. do think it'll penalise families in particular. But she did say that we have not identified sufficient measures to hit this 50% cut mm. in our transport emissions by 2030 and if we're going to wait until we have adequate public transport, we're not hitting them. We just need to push people out of their cars. Yeah, know? but I mean, it, it's, it, it's all very well saying that, you, you know, the, the, she didn't get out of her car in, in Longford this morning to try and drive to Leopardstown or Dublin uh, without a proper public transport system, as you say. It's it's three hours, the best part of a three-hour journey. Uh, and in a car, it's half it. And that's the reality of the situation. And if we're going to be told that by bringing this overnight, we're going to really deal with that issue, have the issue straight away, that's, that's not going to happen either. It's tokenism in many respects in, in terms of dealing with this car park okay. issue. Way ahead of all the other big Last year, we burned more oil and, car and uh, coal than ever before in Money Point. There's a big carbon emission. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to my panel and to you at home for watching. Our programme is available as a podcast and all major platforms. But from the Tonight Show team here, good night and do take care. <laughs>